Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Simon Sharp, author of the book Five Times Faster, Rethinking the Science, Economics, and Diplomacy of Climate Change. Simon, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Good to be with you. It's good to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I've spent most of my working life in the UK government, and I began that in the Foreign Office, working as a diplomat, working on all kinds of different problems. And through that, eventually just came to feel that climate change was by far the biggest of any of the problems we were confronting. And so I got to working on that. And I've spent about the last 10 years working on different aspects of climate change domestically and internationally. And I just left the government one year ago to pursue some of those projects outside. It's that inside information, that inside uh, experience really informs your uh, book, which was a very fascinating read in terms of how you mix that insider perspective with some of the ideas of solutions that that people who are not necessarily part of a government can pursue. What led you to undertake a book about it? And, and, and why this book in particular? Well, really, it was a feeling that some of the most important things we need to change, if we're going to get a grip on climate change, are things that are relatively under-recognized. I, I find you have a, a great deal of public discussion about the need to stop extraction of fossil fuels, for example. And you have many people saying that we need more political will um, and that countries need to set stronger emissions targets. These kind of things are are very much talked about. But the problems I wrote about in the book uh, to do with how we understand the risks of climate change, how we understand the economics and, and decide policies and how countries try to work together, those things I've found, uh, as I've worked on them, I've, I've found there are really some quite shocking failings. And the thing that frustrates me is those are so under-recognized. So um, a, a lot of my work for the last decade has been trying to work on the inside of government systems to try and change things as much as I could uh, from that position. But I wrote the book really to try to create a wider recognition of some of those problems and hopefully shake up some institutions by putting them under a bit more outside pressure. That was the challenge that I thought was the most fascinating that you're posing. It's, it's, if anything, it's a challenge that's even greater, it seems, than that of climate change itself, which is the challenge of trying to break us from the sort of path development thinking that we've undertaken, that we've created over time in our discussion, certain sets of assumptions and and, and uh, ideas about climate change that, while not necessarily false, have cr- have led to certain misconceptions that, that inhibit our ability to solve it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And uh, the, the analogy that I, I often draw in presenting this is when you look at a city and you see all the visible infrastructure of coal plants and buses and cars and, and all that factories and stuff, emitting all the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, What's happening there depends a lot on infrastructure that you can't see. 
the underlying cables and pipelines and engineering. And I, I think there's an analogous invisible infrastructure of ideas and institutions. And this has a huge influence on what we think and what we do. And it's so difficult to overcome that, which is one of the things that makes your book so uh, fascinating is that you are adopting these approaches that are both at the same time significantly different and yet at the same time not so radical as to be entirely beyond uh, you know, uh, you know, f- uh, fathomability. Yeah, I, I think really what I find hopeful is that if we get some of these things right, if we have better understanding of the problem itself and of what we can do about it, we can actually make much faster progress for the same level of political will, the same level of social will that we currently have, um, and the same level of resources. It's a question of directing those resources more effectively than we currently are. Let's get a bit more into how you approach this uh, in terms of your categorization. You, you divide the book into three areas, and the first of these is uh, the science. And here you're addressing not just, you know, the the you're not addressing so much the, the, the particulars of the science of climate change, but how we use that science to understand the problem of climate change. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate upon how what you're proposing with regard to the science and and how we could perhaps use science to get a better understanding of the problem that we face. Yeah, sure. And and the first thing to say is if it wasn't for the scientists, we wouldn't know anything about climate change and we would be nowhere in solving it. So I have a great deal of gratitude to the scientific community. And that that has to be the preface to any criticism. The criticism, though, is that a lot of what we have in the research that's done and communicated to governments especially is in the form of prediction or forecasting. It asks first, what's most likely to happen? And then second, does that matter? Does it affect anything we care about? And what I'm arguing is we need far more risk assessment. And risk assessment asks those questions the other way around. It asks first, what do we care most about? What's the worst that can happen? And second, how likely is that? I'll give a a couple of examples to show how that gets you to a very different place. So let's say you're talking about the rising global sea levels. You can make a prediction that the most likely increase is somewhere between half a meter and one meter by the end of this century. Now, that's a very well-known fact, but it doesn't tell you very much about how much we should care about it. If you make a risk assessment, then you start by saying, what's the worst that could happen? And you might say, for example, well, what is the limit of tolerance of a coastal city to sea level rise? What's the most it could possibly adapt and protect itself against? And actually, there are very few studies of that. But to take one, for example, one has been done for London, estimated that upper limit at somewhere around about five metres Beyond that level, you'd have to build a wall around London and pump the River Thames over the top. And the cost and difficulty and residual risk of that probably mean it wouldn't be worth trying. You'd have to give up on central London at that point. And so then you could ask, well, how likely is that level to be crossed? And it's very uncertain. It depends how quickly ice sheets break up. But there is a plausible worst case scenario where that could happen within the next 200 years. And that's quite shocking when you think, London has a history of at least 2,000 years. To give another example, um, one of the most obvious problems of the world getting hotter 
is people suffer more from heat stress. And here, very typically, a lot of the analysis we see is to do with reducing labor productivity as it gets warmer. And that is a serious issue, but it's maybe not as important as survival. And there actually is, uh, to the best of our understanding, a limit of the human body's tolerance for heat stress. There's a combination of heat and humidity. And currently, climate conditions in the world uh, never cross that threshold. But with climate change, they could. And that could mean that you'd encounter climate conditions in hot parts of the world, where even if you were young, fit and healthy, lying down in the shade, tipping water over yourself to keep cool, you would still die of heat stress. Now, that's a, that's an extremely serious risk. And it's something I think all governments should know about. Um, but in the the last report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there were more academic papers cited on the subjects of skiing and grape growing than there were on this threshold of extreme risk for heat stress, limit of human tolerance. So in many ways, I think the research is not focusing on telling us what we really need to know. And even where it is, you sometimes get a an underestimation or an understatement of risk, which is very interesting where it comes from, but I think it's very much to do with the professional culture of science. Uh, you talk to a, a scientist and somebody in any field of risk management, like insurance or national defense, um, and they you find out they actually have the opposite kind of error bias. Scientists are very averse to false positives, saying something is true when it when it isn't. And risk managers are highly averse to false negatives, not saying something's true when it turns out it is. Both of those are, are absolutely right for their context. But what it means if is if you want really good risk assessment, you can't just leave it to scientists. It has to be co-produced by people who understand science, people who have other relevant knowledge, and people who understand risk. So when you put these different things together, the really quite surprising thing when you think how much research has been done is that actually governments and I think heads of government in particular have far less understanding than you would expect of the full severity of the threat of climate change. That was something that you elaborate upon later in that section where you, you talk about how we're sometimes not asking questions or addressing questions that we need to such as you know what you know are, are we specifically doing the climate but the, the one that, and this comes from my own background that i thought was a, a question that you're, you're right we're not asking enough of which is you know what are we going to do to each other as a consequence of that and that's something that that, that when i when i was thinking back to you know my my, my admittedly superficial you know exposure to the the climate change debate it is something that we you know, it, it's it's maybe appended as as an afterthought or inserted as sort of uh, apocalyptic doomsaying, but it is one that nonetheless is you know if these things are going to happen, we will not sit by passively and watch the water rise to our ankles or our, our knees or above our heads and just just let it happen. That there will be a reaction to that, and it, it, it definitely when we think about what that reaction is, not just in a fantastical sense, but in a practical sense as to how humans behave, it really does change the equation of risk assessment. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in in the UK's first climate change risk assessment, uh, 
the assessment was largely confined to what it called direct risks of climate change. In other words, it gets too hot or too dry or too wet. Um, but then almost as an afterthought, there was a study commission looking at the indirect risks of climate change, things like risks to international peace and security, risks to global food security. And that study found that perhaps those indirect risks could be greater by an order of magnitude than the direct ones. The, the difficulty there is those, those systemic risks um, are so, by their very nature, difficult to assess that they're exactly what scientists will not be willing to speculate about. And that's absolutely right. They're, they're really not questions of science. Probably the best way that you can assess those risks is having a structured conversation like a scenarios exercise between people who do understand climate science and other associated issues like resource degradation, who can describe the conditions we might face in future, and people who understand international security who can think seriously about how countries might respond. But any any of that kind of assessment, any material you might generate, it's, it's not likely to be um, convincing to people who weren't in the room. It's not the kind of thing you can publish and, and have a peer-reviewed paper and everybody says, that's right, that's fact. It's an assessment in a context of deep uncertainty. And so I think every country needs to be doing that for themselves, asking their own experts and forming their own view of, of how serious that risk is. But when, when you do do those exercises, of course, um, it's not pleasant. What what the security guys and the scientists say when they come together is pretty worrying. It's interesting that so much of that risk assessment is, it, when it, we talk about the consequences upon people, is is framed in terms of economics. And, and, and that take, in that, uh, you know, brings us to the second section of your book, which is the examination of how we uh, utilize uh, economics to talk about the costs of climate change and how, you know, and that's oftentimes how, how we how so much of this debate is framed. What will it cost for us to do this? And as you point out, though, that that in some ways the the you know use of economics has has been. Uh, has been distorting in so many ways and 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 that it leads to a lot of misconceptions about the challenge that we face and 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 the price that we would pay for our choices yeah i mean i i think this is hugely important and there are two sides to it as as you say there's the economics of the problem and the economics of the solution in terms of the problem i think it's it's increasingly understood though not yet well enough that those economic estimates of the overall costs of climate change are really largely meaningless. And that's for two reasons. One, there are irreducible uncertainties. If the scientists don't know whether the Greenland ice sheet is going to break up over a course of a century or a millennium, then the economists can't possibly know that. And they can't put probabilities on it. And the second is the inherent subjectivity. You know, how much do we care about the inhabitability of different parts of the earth or the future viability of human civilization? That's really a judgment call. It's it's really up to you. And when economists put numbers on those things, it's, it's really completely arbitrary. So when you get these estimates, like climate change could cost 13% of global GDP, it really is largely meaningless. The more interesting thing, I think, is to do with the economics of the solution. And in other words, 
we know what we have to do is massively shift huge big chunks of the global economy towards clean technologies and do that really quickly and that's in electricity generation in transport over land sea and air in the food that we grow uh, the buildings the industry all of that has to change structurally and radically and quickly and of course most of the governments confronting this problem whenever they make the decisions that really matter to the, these outcomes climate change is probably only third or fourth on their list of priorities the things they really care about are costs and jobs and security of supply of of goods and services because those are the things that they think their their people will judge them on so economics is the field that tells governments if you do this policy this is the kind of outcome you should expect in terms of jobs and costs and economic growth and what matters so much is that we have a whole set of economic ideas and tools that are completely inappropriate for this problem that we face uh, to to sum it up in one thing we have a set of economic tools that assumes equilibrium in the economy equilibrium is defined as a situation in which no actor has any reason to change their actions uh, so that the status quo can continue and that's absolutely not the situation that we face with climate change where we have to have these low carbon transitions where everybody's got many reasons to change their actions and the status quo is replaced with something completely different so in in fact when you look at the economy um not just for climate change you think well perhaps it's very rare that any part of the economy is in equilibrium you can think of you know an analogy as a game of football imagine you've got two teams 11 players on each one when is that ever in equilibrium when does it ever reach a situation where nobody has any reason to change their actions well never all of the actors on that pitch are constantly trying to change their actions trying to find ways to win and that's in a situation where there's no change of technologies the football doesn't change the goals don't change then if you imagine the football clubs the the businesses that own them they have even more degrees of freedom they can buy new players they can change their technologies they can change their marketing strategies there's much more they can do there's even less chance that in the competition between all of them there's going to be any state of equilibrium and so it is in the global economy you've actually got a constant state of evolution it's more like an ecosystem it's less like the machine that we've imagined it to be you have constant change you have uncertainty and you have complex dynamics where often small changes can lead to large effects so if we replace the ideas um the set of of tools that we have that imagine the economy as a static entity uh with ones that understand its dynamics then we arrive at very different answers to the question of what should we do about climate change uh, and that, that, I was going to say that that gets to how what you're talking about is is really changing not not just you know the you know how, how we go about achieving solutions but how we're conceptualizing the problems that sometimes the assumptions we bring into it the economy as a machine versus the economy as an, as an ecosystem leads to very different uh, uh, recon reconceptions of, of of risk and reward. Yeah, completely. I mean, to give one example. The most common advice of economists and a very authoritative economic institutions for years has been that 
the most efficient policy to decarbonize the economy is carbon pricing, putting a price on carbon emissions. Now, that makes sense based on the logic of equilibrium. It, it says, you know, there's something in the economy that ought to be paid for, put a price on it so people pay, and it restores the right allocation of economic resources. But thinking about that in terms of an economy that isn't static, that is changing, that has technological change and uncertainty and every other kind of change, it actually doesn't make any sense. When you think about the feedbacks, you're in a technology transition where you have to uh, replace a whole set of technologies, infrastructures and business models with new ones. If you just tax the old technologies at the beginning of that transition, nothing really happens. All you do is make the existing systems function a little bit more efficiently. And quite likely, they push back against you because they don't really want to change. Whereas if you invest in the new technologies, what happens is you get all of these increasing returns to scale, the reinforcing feedbacks. You get learning by doing. The more you make something, the better you get at making it economies of scale, where the more you make, the cheaper it gets. And the emergence of complementary technologies, the more people use one technology, the more other technologies emerge that make it more useful. All of those things give you increasing return on your, on your effort. It's like interest on your bank account. So actually, investing in clean technologies, targeted investment like subsidies, public procurement, that kind of thing is incredibly powerful. And actually, when we look at where's the progress occurred so far in low carbon transitions, it's occurred in response to those kind of targeted investments, not to carbon pricing. When you look back at the technology transitions of the past, again, that's what you see. And it's less and less surprising. When we moved from horses to cars, we did it by investing in the motors, the factories, the vehicles, building the highways, writing the highway code, all of those things that created the new technologies and the new systems. We didn't do it just by putting a tax on horse manure. Now, what you described is how these solutions are possible. A lot of people, though, point to the scale of the problem. They talk about how we're talking about a, a truly global problem that 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 uh, so many of the solutions that we've adopted, no matter how good they might be, are simply beyond the, uh, you know, just simply are, are don't measure up to the problem. But that gets us to the third part of your book. And this is the one where I, I thought it was especially fascinating the way you bring in your personal experience to show how it is that we can achieve these so many of these solutions without having to you know, radically revise our society or our government, that, that we have the, the, the mechanisms that... Uh, uh, today to to do so if we simply go about doing it a little differently, which uh, we can do within these existing systems. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that diplomacy and, and how we can have, we can use the tools of diplomacy to achieve these uh, these goals that we've, you know, as we've reconceptualized the problem to achieve them more effectively and more efficiently. Yeah. And, and it is, it is an awesome challenge changing such large parts of the global economy and doing it quickly. Um, the question is, can diplomacy help? And how much can it help? And how? And as you say, I'd, I worked in diplomacy for a long time, and I worked in other fields before I came to climate change. And when I did come on to climate change, it seemed to me that we were 
approaching the diplomacy in a very strange way that was unlike what I think we could see having worked in diplomacy in the past in other fields like trade and international security. Um, of course, diplomacy often doesn't work. It often fails, but but sometimes it works and, and we can learn certain things from those successes. And it seems to me when you look at how we've gone about trying to uh, solve climate change through diplomacy over the last 30 years, we've structured it almost to make it as difficult for ourselves as we possibly could have done. And I'll break that down into three things, the scope, the participation, and the timing. In terms of the scope, the climate change negotiations, generally speaking, have been structured at maximum scope. They've said, let's take on the whole problem of climate change, the whole problem of global emissions, and we'll have discussions around long-term economy-wide emissions targets. Well, when diplomacy has been successful in the past, it's normally broken up problems to a size that makes them manageable. Uh, we don't, for example, still try to have negotiations to agree a global peace treaty to never ever go to war ever again. That has been tried. It was tried in the 1920s, uh, came up with a thing called the Kellogg-Briand Pact, where countries said they'd never again use war as an instrument of national policy. And of course, that didn't last very long. Whereas specific peace agreements uh, tailored to their region and the particular problems they were trying to solve have been successful. So when we look at global emissions, the whole thing at once is really too big to be manageable. But if you look at the different sectors, the power, transport, buildings, industry, agriculture, you find each of those sectors is quite different from the others. It's different in the nature of the problems to be overcome, the nature of the solutions, uh, the countries that are most influential, and also the, the nature of the international connections, whether it's flows of technology, finance, knowledge, people or goods that's that's most important in that sector that gives diplomacy something to work with so first thing is we have to break break it down and have focused diplomacy in each of the main emitting sectors the second thing is participation now we've had and we still have universal participation in climate change diplomacy and in one way that's very good it's very good for legitimacy and so it's being able to yield some global goals like limiting temperature rise to two degrees, one and a half if we can. And, and those kind of goals have really strong legitimacy. So that is helpful. The downside is if you have everybody around the table, your lowest common denominator is as low as it can possibly be. And that's why increasingly climate change negotiations are all about process and not about substance. It's a bit like if we all agreed exactly on the details of, of the form we were going to fill in for our tax returns, but we all decided for ourselves whether we were going to actually pay any tax, and if so, how much, or if we were going to just claim benefits. If, if you want a workable uh, participation, you have to aim for a critical mass. What's going to be just enough countries to shift the global market in a given sector? And typically, you find the top 10 countries account for about three quarters of global production or consumption in any of the emitting sectors, sometimes even fewer than that. So you really don't need to have 196 countries agreeing everything. Third point is timing. Much of our diplomacy so far is focused on targets, often net zero targets, 2050 or even later, and 
2030 emissions targets. The problem with those is governments don't have confidence about what they can do that far in the future and also their interests in what they can achieve in the future are, are not very strong. What you tend to find is they can commit to much more in terms of present actions than they can in terms of long-term targets. And when they do do the right things in the present, then because of all of the, those reinforcing feedbacks we were talking about earlier, they end up making far more progress than they expect. So by 2020, countries had collectively deployed more than 10 times as much solar power as they thought they would manage by that point when they made their targets about 15 years earlier. So if we focus on sector-specific scope, critical mass of participation and present actions, we'll be moving into a much more high leverage space for climate change diplomacy. And it's quite possible that it can really help speed up. Hmm. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I'm, I'm part of a process to write something called the Breakthrough Agenda Report. Breakthrough Agenda is uh, a process that a large number of countries agreed to at the COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, where they said they would work together in each of the emitting sectors to make the clean technologies more affordable, accessible and attractive than the fossil fuels. And uh, there are three organisations, I'm part of one of them, which every year write a report that gives some advice to countries on where those opportunities are to work together to make faster progress. So that's that's one thing I'm spending my time on. And the other one is trying to launch some new projects on the economics of low carbon transitions that will help governments see how they can reduce costs, create jobs and improve living standards through the right kind of effective policies for fast transitions. Well, both of those sound like great worthy work. I'm, I'm glad, though, that you were able to make the time to write a book to get out the word about how we could better approach the problems of climate change so as to affect change that way as well. Well, thank you. And I hope people like it. Yeah, I, I think they will. Thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us, Simon. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. 